0: Watch debut films from choreographers Jack Fervor and Omari Wiles as part of All Arts Dance Film Festival, Past, Present, Future, streaming free on the All Arts app and at allarts.org slash past present future. Dance friends, I'm Margaret Fuhrer, editor and producer of the Dance Edit newsletter and podcast, back with another interview episode. This time we actually have a returning guest, friend of the pod, Phil Chan. Phil is a man of many hats: writer, educator, consultant, choreographer. He is the co-founder with New York City Ballet Soloist Georgina Pascogan of the organization Final Bow for Yellowface and he's been working for years now to improve Asian representation in the dance world. In 2020, Phil published his first book, Final Bow for Yellowface, Dancing Between Intention and Impact, which described his journey navigating the many issues that emerge from the Chinese dance in The Nutcracker. Now he's published another book called Banishing Orientalism, which has a wider scope. It looks at the whole history of Orientalism in ballet. But it doesn't just condemn everything racist and backward about these older works, though there's certainly much to condemn. Instead, Phil lays out a case for reimagining Orientalist pieces so that they can engage and speak directly to 21st century audiences. The book is a must read, and like pretty much every interview Phil does, this conversation is a must listen to. He's just such a knowledgeable and perceptive leader in this really hard and really important work here he is. Hi, Phil. Thank you so much for, for coming back on the podcast.
1: Of course. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So during our last interview, which was almost two years ago now, my gosh, what is time? We got into some of the ideas that you explored in your first book, Final Bow for Yellow Dancing Between Intention and Impact. Now you have a new book, Banishing Orientalism, that essentially expands outward from the first so can you start by talking about the initial impetus for banishing orientalism where it grew from
1: yeah this book feels like the like empire strikes back if the first book is star wars it's (laughs) just like a little it's a little darker it hits a little harder um and it's there's a lot more research in it as well um but it really came out of this experience i had at the pennsylvania ballet where you know here is this like company that's trying to do La Bayadere, which is like the pinnacle of classism, and it's like really this defining ballet for many companies that says like, we're of a certain caliber because we can do this well, Mm -hmm. you know, and then that is like the gold standard. And to see that it was being presented for an audience with one of the highest South Asian Expanding populations in the United States, and like that's the audience, the local audience you're trying to build. And so we have this majority white company, not saying not diverse, but majority white company, um, pretending to be Indian people, you know, casually depicting, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, and, and, and also just like all of the exotic tropes that come with that just really realizing that like, okay, so this is gonna be a problem for our industry. Like how do we save works like La Bayadere that have this intrinsic value, beautiful choreography, beautiful music, um, and is so important for the next generation of dancers to keep dancing, right? Because if, if you don't know where we've come from as a as a tradition, how do we know where we're going? How do we innovate in the art form and break the art form and push it forward if we don't understand our own past and our own cliches and where we've already, Explored creatively, so you know. At the same time, pretending that we present these works under the guise of tradition, when we're trying to court a multiracial audience and present these works for a multi you know racial generation, those two things aren't congruent, right? So we can't pretend that our work, which is from Europe, stays Eurocentric. the The creative challenge for our field is how do we expand into thinking for our multiracial classics while preserving the parts of the ballets that are a really important part of our heritage, like the steps in the music. So that's inherently the challenge. And I really like to think of this work as the opposite of cancel culture, right? Because like if you're saying, hey, get rid of it, we're losing so much. But what I'm saying is, hey, we still can do it because we need the income from the audiences that are already going to buy tickets for it. And let's use that money to commission a new work by an underrepresented choreographer. But that can be part of the ecosystem. There can be room for both. And we, we frankly need to. But how can we still shift these ballets to include non-Europeans, including white Americans? So the, the that was the impetus for the the book itself. And then I was also fortunate to to have a fellowship at the New York Public Library in the, as a Jerome Robbins fellow. And I wanted to ask, like... There were so many ballets that I came across that, that are set in the Orient, right? Like about a hundred. Um, so stories set in the exotic Middle East, India, China, Japan, etc. And I just want to know, like, there were so many and like why? Why was that so attractive? What was going on in the world that made that that so appealing? And also what did it serve for ballet? Like how did it, how did all of these Oriental stories serve ballet as an art form what did we gain from them as opposed to just saying well god this this whole thing is racist which you know it can be both (laughs) right um but so that was really i wanted to look a little bit deeper at some of these issues and not just see it as a black and white issue but like look at the history and the context to to add a little bit more nuance to the, the repertory, the, the the ballets that we continue to perform that are literally over a hundred years old and why we do it and for whom do we do it for? And, and just to think a little bit bigger and more creatively, especially around issues of race.
0: Yeah, your book has as part of its central thesis an idea that was new and surprising to me and I think probably a lot of ballet folks that Orientalism was in fact a major creative generator in the arts and in ballet specifically. Um, it sounds like discovering that through your research even surprised you a little bit too.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's so easy being from a culture that is seen as exotic, right? I'm, I'm from Hong Kong, right? And so that automatically evokes a certain perfume in, in many people. Oh, Hong Kong, you know. Um, but to me, it's just home, right? And so I've, I'm used to having a slightly different center. And so thinking about like that appeal of innovation, you know, I came to that after having to deal with my own discomfort of like, ooh, this feels really racist, or ooh, this makes me feel like this is about me or my culture, and I definitely don't belong. It's not for me. It makes you feel kind of icky, especially if you really love the art form. To then see like caricatured, yellow faced, you know, Orientalist portrayals of your heritage that don't feel right, and so that just getting over that initial discomfort, I think that the first impulse is like, we'll just like burn the whole thing down, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And that's that's where, you know, you have to confront that anger and that resentment and that discomfort and move beyond that and say, okay, so what, what are we actually looking at on a deeper level here? Let's not assume any intention. Let's just look at what it is and what the time was and what was possible just with the larger world of that time. And I think when you start to look at that level of nuance, you can find solutions for not only what is worth keeping, but how to move forward um, in this moment, right? Because if you just study history, ballet has changed throughout the centuries, right? That used to be done in people's you know, in court or in the ballroom. It used to be done just by men. So the fact that it has moved to where it is now, where you can have site-specific outdoor ballet performances with brown people and women, um, like, you know, that that is radical in itself as an evolution, right? From the Baroque dances of the highest noble people, you know, of Europe. So that's the evolution that we're watching happen. So how do we get more people involved um, in this art form? And that is what I'm interested in.
0: Yeah. And the more you love it, the angrier one feels. It's sort of like, and then how do you channel righteous anger into something productive because you love it? Yeah. Yeah, I was especially interested in this idea that because these, like heavy quotation marks, exotic settings allowed for the subversion of norms of the time about gender and sex and politics... In some respects, these stories are actually more modern than other stories from the 19th century ballet canon. Like women end up having a lot more agency in some Orientalist ballets than, say, Aurora does. Although then they all die in the end.
1: Yeah, they they do have to be punished for they, that. Agency, they must be of punished,
0: right? Yeah. Right. But so we have reached a point where it is clear, or rather, thanks in no small part to your efforts and to Georgina's efforts, it's becoming increasingly clear to most people that. Orientalism is overtly harmful. It's rotting. It is no longer a productive, creative medium. You spend a lot of the book talking about how to figure out what parts of these ballets are worth saving and what parts we need to let go. And this is a subject that you you teach now, too. You've taught at Carleton College and and beyond. So acknowledging that I'm asking you to paraphrase essentially a large swath of your book, what do you see as the key criteria in that process?
1: I mean, it's it's actually quite simple. I mean, my favorite question that I talk about in the book is what else could it be, right? So, you know, when you're a little kid and, you know, like a pen, it's not just a pen, it's a sword or a spaceship or a magic wand. And then at some point you're told, hey, grow up, you know, like stop pretending, like get it together. Um, but as artists, we need to have that part of our playful childlike nature still engaged. That's where creativity and innovation come from. So even if you're not a dancer, you might be a scientist or, or a lawyer or a doctor, um, If you, you innovate in your field and that's part of your work. Being in touch with that creative part of your brain is so important, and so that's that that comes back to this question of what else could it be? Seeing potential from a slightly different point of view. So when you're taking a work like um, La Bayadère, for example, which I'm working on staging a production for with Indiana University, first of all, the, the process is like, what is worth saving? Like, what? Why do people love it? And in the case of Bayadère, it's the incredible. Choreography, right? Notably for the Kingdom of the Shades, but like there's also a lot of fun stuff in the rest of the ballet too, and also the music that goes with it, right? You can't have the choreography divorced from the music, so you know that sort of has to fit too. Um, so starting from there, those are the constraints. So then, within those constraints, what else could it be? Um, so I'm working with the brilliant uh, musicologist and dance notation expert Doug Fullington. and we're basically going back to the Tibetan uh, dance notation that's of the Sergei of collection at the Houghton Library at Harvard, which I had the uh, incredible pleasure of handling myself, like literally in the wow. library, like turning the pages of this dance notation, which was wild. But starting with the dance notation as a framework um, and actually stripping away a lot of the later Soviet additions to, to the ballet. So putting it at sort of faster, more upbeat tempo than it originally was and going back to those steps, those 19th century steps. And they look kind of fresh and interesting like it's just really it's a different way of looking at at dance within this framework and we're also restaging the dances with the context of it's going to take place in sort of 1920s hollywood sort of the golden age of the hollywood movie musical and they're filming a dude ranch sort of a cowboy musical right so sort of like girl crazy you know judy garland mickey rooney so a lot of fringe a lot of americana and there's also this like backstage drama that's that's happening, right? If you imagine, you know, sort of paralleling *Singing in the Rain*, if if you know Debbie Reynolds is is Nakia, uh, Solar is Jean Kelly, and Lena Lamont is, Lena is Lamont. Princess Kamzadi, yeah. right? And so you have the, you have an excuse for dances that work, and you have a congruent story that fits the dances and the the, the libretto. So finding a, you know a way to do this where it's like It doesn't have to be about Indian people. It can be about us. And it can be appropriate for a multiracial cast. So any dancer can play any role and it's not weird. And also anyone in the audience can come to to see this work and say, oh, I see myself in this character or in this part. Um, And and so what else can it be? That is the process. So, for example, we are including um, the Bronze Idol, even though that's a sort of a 1940s Soviet edition. But it's just so fun. We just couldn't resist. So think about what is a Hollywood Bronze Idol?
0: An Oscar it's an Oscar, it? yeah. right?
1: Right. Yeah. So we're going to have a dancing Oscar and the, the little children who usually dance around him in blackface, um, they're going to be little studio executives. So like <laughs> little boys in tuxedos and like, you know, little mustaches and kind of doing these funny gestures and sort of dancing around the Oscar. And it, it, it has that impact of like, wow, this is not only like beautiful, fun dancing, but it's also like, it's, it's fun. It's supposed to be fun. And Like that's originally what it was supposed to be, was supposed to be entertaining. And so we can also do that and still have the melodrama of the ballet supported. Um, We're also working with um, a a man named Larry Moore, who's a brilliant uh, musicologist. He does a lot of the orchestration for like the Cole Porter Estate, Gershwin, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And he's restaging the Minka score or rescoring the Minka score to be in that sort of big band jazz, American musical style. You know, and so Kingdom of the Shades is going to sound like a Busby Berkeley film where all the women are in white and silver, like Art Deco, and you know, Solar is in in tails instead of a turban, right? A black tails, you know. And it's the same thing. That's the the impact on us when you see that is the same, and it's a way so that anybody of any race can play any part, and it's not weird, and yeah, it's just a better way to keep the dancing alive and. That makes it exciting and fresh, and no one is canceling Petty, and Minkus. We're we're honoring what it is, but also making it part of ours, you know. And that's how we keep the, this art form alive, right? That's that balance.
0: Um, You also mentioned in the book an idea that you have for reimagining Corsair, which is in many ways even more problematic. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little about that too, just because talking about these ideas for transpositions just illustrates all the ideas you get into in your book so directly,
1: right? I, I am, I love Corsair. I, I actually, I love humor. And I feel like we need more of it in our art form, especially like coming out of this pandemic. Like, let's just Please let's laugh. Like tell some yeah. jokes, right? Yeah, come on, guys. It's, it's. And if you look at ballet history, again, like we have these like very serious ballets like Giselle and, and Swan Lake, these sort of dramatic tragedies, you know, Roman and Juliet. But like, there's also a side of ballet that is very camp very vaudeville very and sometimes stupid like mm-hmm. slapstick like it's it's entertaining and it's fun and that's a part that we forget because sometimes those ballets aren't handed down and corsair is one of those ballets that is like it's supposed to be funny it's supposed to be over the top and you're seeing brilliant ballet and that's the point so starting from that place we're actually look doug and i are looking at what is it it's sort of a harem Fantasy, right? It's sort of like swashbuckling. So, like, what's our version of that? How do we make that about us? Um, So, our version um, takes place at the Miss Ocean's Beauty Pageant uh, at the Pirates Cove Casino in Atlantis Beach, right? And so, this place is sort of a mix of Las Vegas and Monte Carlo, you know, Atlantic City. Yeah. You know, Atlantic City. Yeah. This sort of like this sort of casino town. And a beauty pageant is like such a great way to showcase all of these dances, right? You can have pink flamingo odalisques, <laughs> right? You can have beauty queens, you can have show girls um, and you can also kind of roll your eyes at the whole thing and not take it so seriously, right? Like, you know, and Odalisque finish her finishes her variation and she, because she has to dance for the Pasha who in our production is the owner of the casino and the organizer of the beauty pageant.
0: Familiar character.
1: Right, but also in our version, will be played by um, a woman. So oh. it'll, but playing a male character. So in travesty. Um, so again, as a female performer, is able to turn up the sexism mm-hmm. and make it really crude. And we all know it's a woman, and it then becomes instead of like a judgment on Arab men and like saying like, Oh, well, here's a, he's a horny Arab and he, he's expanding his harem because that's what horny Arab men do. And that's why they're savage. Instead, it's a mirror on ourselves saying like, Hey, men in the audience, don't be gross. Like we're laughing at the chauvinist, the entire audience, gentlemen, don't be gross. Right. And so you're taking this, this sort of racist, sexist depiction from the 1870s. And suddenly it's it's about us and the jokes on us and it's also fun and funny and uncomfortable and all of those things can happen at the same time. And that's makes interesting art. Right. Um, So really going for that, that, that camp factor, but yeah, they're, they're pirates. So what are they? They're, you know, there's sort of gangsters and beauty queens and showgirls and their speedboat chases and jewelry heists and, you know, like everything you'd expect in that story, which is exactly what Le Corsair is yeah. as a work. And so honoring that, but also saying, avoiding the the idea of saying like, okay, well, you know, here, here we have Misty Copeland, the first African-American principal ballerina dancing the part of the happy slave on Juneteenth, you know, at America's national company. Like let's, Let's that doesn't see that's a clear example that it doesn't work for a multiracial audience when we do the Eurocentric version. That doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for white people in America either. White Americans who are not who don't identify as Europeans, right? I'm I'm German German American, I'm Irish American, but I don't identify as European, right? So let's stop pretending. Let's make this work about us if we want it to survive for us
0: and and in doing so bring it sort of in line with a lot more of the other contemporary art that's happening i mean social commentary cloaked in humor that's a mode that we see all over the cultural content we consume Since now. Since the dawn of time. But it's like we've forgotten right. that ballet can do that and is actually really good at it because it's naturally there are elements of camp inside of ballet.
1: And there's no words. Yeah. So like, it's not, I'm not, I'm I'm not saying it, but I'm saying it. Right. Because there's no words and you, whatever meaning you attach to the gestures, the phrases, that's how it works, right? So one example of that is um, in our Bayadere. Um, you know, there's a scene at the at the top of the opera or at the, at the top of the ballet where Solar points to his heart and he points to the heavens with two fingers, and Nakia sort of grabs his hand and is kind of shy about it. And like, if you do not know ballet, what does that mean? No idea. What gone. does that mean? Yeah. And then and then now I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, God, everybody else in the audience is sort of nodding along, and I don't know what it means, and I must be stupid, and I'm the dumb one. And oh my God, now I've, I'm worried about being the dumb one. I've now missed 10 minutes of the ballet because I'm sitting here worried that I didn't get it. And now I really don't get it. And who's this person now? Like, oh, I should just leave at intermission. I'm just so right, embarrassed and this back. is not for me. Right, Right. and literally in our adair Saul goes up to Nikki and he gets down on one knee and he pulls out a ring and he proposes to her. He says like, I'm gonna love you forever. And she blushes, but you know she's like she's being proposed to, and everybody in the audience gets that, mm-hmm. gets that gesture. It conveys the same meaning, and it's not from this archaic mime that only a few of us who've studied it and who go to the ballet a lot and you know probably read through a program or figured it out. Um, we're the only people who get it um, when it's such a universal feeling. We're trying to get people to feel. Right. And so we have to meet our audiences in a place that they will really understand the stories we're trying to tell.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So my next question is heading in a little bit of a different direction. Um, in the book, you discuss how non-white choreographers, yourself included, come up against this kind of catch-22 where there is this expectation that what sets you apart as an artist is your experience as a member of a particular non-white racial or cultural group and sometimes you might want to include elements of your own cultural experience in your work because that can help other people see more clearly. but then that also pigeonholes you in a way that white artists never have to worry about. Can you talk a little more about that?
1: Yeah, it, it just feels like um, and again, this is where there are parallels with other non-white artists um, in the form is like if you do something from that is deeply inspired from your heritage, you're seen as sort of like an ethnic choreographer um, and pigeonholed in that way. And if you do things in a traditionally white form, so if I did Baroque dance or worked in a style like Balanchine-esque, neoclassical, or Jerome Robbins-esque, I would be seen as derivative as opposed to continuing a line or continuing a a trajectory of historical conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So other artists can be seen as continuing you know, what Balanchine was doing, but as a person of color, you're seen as, oh, you're just ripping off Balanchine, right? And so I think that's part of the catch-22 is like, you know, when we try to dance like you, we're seen as just dance, just trying to copy you. And when we dance our own way, we're only seen in that way. And I think where the, the way to break out of that is to, as artists, and you, we should be doing this anyway, so I think it's a good motivator, is to just break some of those expectations. Um, So as an artist, how can I say things differently? Okay, so you're expecting a bamboo dance from me. So how can I play with that and make something that'll get you to think? I'm already gonna make a dance. So how can I also do that, right? And that's a way to use elements from my own culture and subvert them while teasing you as an audience member. So there are other ways to respond to your own culture and heritage. And we have to remember culture is, it's, we're, we're literally having this experience where we're responding to what people said on the last page. We're sort of all collectively writing a book together. And we're just picking up the story now because we're the living ones. And we're also responding to how people did things in the past, right? That's what the conversation is. So it's meant to be shared. It's meant to be questioned. It's meant to be broken up and re put together. And, and you know, that that process is part of how culture works. It's just, it's a little bit harder when you're working across racial lines and there's a dynamic, a historic dynamic that makes that feel unequal or imbalanced. So I think that's something that also, you know, choreographers of, of any race are starting to be more aware of, which is which is nice. So finding pride but also sensitivity. Um, and also collaboration. That's a great way to to work across these cultural lines too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now you're starting to answer um, my next question, which is a a related question that you explored toward the end of the book about who should be again, heavy quotation marks allowed to tell what stories like, is it best to avoid the issue of cultural appropriation by only having people from a particular community create art about that community or do we lose something by following that kind of rule?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's really challenging. Um, I'm, directing a production of Madama Butterfly for Boston Lyric Opera that opens um, this September. Um, and I'm setting it in the 1940s, so keeping the Puccini score, again, the same process, mm-hmm. keeping the Puccini score, but setting it in the 1940s in California. So really tackling head on, you know, the issue of Japanese incarceration um, as a theme in the opera. And yeah, how do I tell that story when it's not my story? I'm Chinese, I'm not Japanese. Um, this didn't affect my me personally in any way. But also, it does affect me as an American. This is an, an important part of American history. And also, uh, if we relied on the burden of saying, "Well, only Japanese Americans can tell this story," then what if a Japanese per- American person doesn't want to tell that story? What if they want to tell jokes instead? You know, like, the, but there's a responsibility that only they can talk about this story. So I think, you know, just from a larger human perspective, it's important that we recognize stories like. Japanese incarceration, like the Holocaust, and not put the burden on just those people to keep having to keep those stories alive. it's It's all of our responsibilities. Um at the same time, I don't have the the lived experience to be fully sensitive to what some of the the issues are, the the boundaries around this conversation. And so a lot of my collaborators are um, Japanese, Japanese, American, and primarily women, because this was a process that I really wanted to, get their input in questioning how we approach this opera. So in order to collaborate, you know, having an open mind, having a curious a curiosity about it, um, and having a willingness to collaborate and make space for other people to put what they see and their experiences into the living performance that we're putting on together. I think that process is a way to cross some of those cultural lines with integrity. So yeah, just, just really trying to practice what I preach. Um, but also articulate that for other people who are inspired by other cultures and they really want to tell stories that involve characters from other places and, and should be. But w- what is the added sensitivity that we need um, to do that with integrity? And that's what the sort of second half of the book really tries to talk about.
0: Mm-hmm. You have been really busy as a choreographer recently and while acknowledging the the catch 22 we were talking about earlier it seems like your work as an activist has sort of spurred you creatively as a choreographer as well i mean even just to do more of it is that the case
1: yeah i think it's just i'm able to open doors for other people and step through them myself as well mm-hmm. and that's i think a big part of my own philosophy in the response to the shooting um, in atlanta last year Gina and i uh, sort of transitioned Final Bow for Yellow Face into being more of a service organization for Asian American creatives. So bringing together a fantastic board of other leaders who had ideas for for what the community needs. So in terms of programming, in terms of support, in terms of professional development, um, networking. So creating that that hub for our community to get involved. And so that's, that's sort of the the foundation of our work, you know, getting getting commissions for Asian choreographers, you know there were very few choreographers uh, of Asian descent for many of the major ballet companies. Now, many of them have, within the last five years, have now hired their first, sometimes their second Asian choreographer, uh, many of them women, which is really great. So, you know, my own work, there's some things that I can say, you know, in books, um, some things now I'm saying in opera, um, and some things that come out in in choreography. And um, it all revolves around the same theme of, shifting this art form for more people? And what does that look like? So, you know, that's the common thread in all of my work, um, whether it's dance, whether it's, you know, operas, and whether it's it's writing, That's that's the question, because that's what I see as how we keep this form alive for the next generation, we have to also evolve it.
0: There's often a sort of stiffness to discussions about race and representation, like people tend to treat the subject with great formality to avoid any perception that they're being disrespectful. Um, but I love the playfulness and humor in your book. I mean, just like we need more playfulness in ballet on stage, we need more playfulness in our conversations about it. That was my read on it. But can you talk a little about why you, why you made that choice?
1: Yeah, I think it's, there is a heaviness to race. And so it's, it's not that it's not serious, but it's hard to listen when it feels heavy. And so can you achieve the same goals with humor? instead or with a lightness sometimes it feels like ugh, you know diversity work like ugh, you know like now we have to go listen to this marginalized group or this other story and it feels it's hard and how do we avoid that feeling and, and encourage people to say no listen this is going to help you be better this is going to make you a better listener this is going to make you better at your job you know more efficient better at dealing with people better with dealing with customers like this is an opportunity this is a chance for creativity right what if we framed it that way when you're also in this mindset of heaviness or or scared you're scared because you don't want to say the wrong thing you don't want to be canceled you aren't open minded you're not creative you're not listening as well you're not as able you know as malleable you know able to learn able to absorb able to change um as if you come to an open place right and you know if dancers know this as performers right like if you are stiff and 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 tight and and clenching you're not going to have a beautiful show right like so much of our work is about loosening and stretching and expanding and being open um and so that is the approach that it takes to have these conversations and so humor is a great way to disarm people. It's a great way to be vulnerable um, and share vulnerability, which is what it takes to be a better listener and to do this work. So that's that's what I try to 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 do. If I can put that in writing, you know, it makes it a lot easier. That's my approach. That's what I'm trying to do.
0: Yeah, and this is this is a related question. Um this is not an angry book, even though it has, you know, sort of every right to be angry. And there is obviously like sort of anger and frustration in it, but it's a fundamentally hopeful book. It's a work of optimism.
1: Oh, God, I hope so. (laughs) I'm glad. Yeah.
0: Well, in that vein, I wanted to close with the same question that I actually asked you last time we talked at the end. At this point, what makes you feel hopeful about the future of Asian representation in ballet?
1: Ooh, um... I guess what makes me hopeful is uh, finally seeing action um, in places. I also see a lot of really gross things still, Mm -hmm. behaviors, uh, resistance to change, some personal ugliness that has lobbed my way as well. So there is this still dark side, Mm -hmm. the strain, the personal burnout and strain of having to do this work on a personal level, you know, is very real. But seeing so many companies step up to the plate, so many companies now are listening, the next generation of dancers are listening and they're asking questions and they're seeing the problems and they want the vocabulary and they want the tools to have these conversations. How do I talk to my director about this? I know this is racist or I know this 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 doesn't feel right or I don't know how to talk about this. So to put some of that into words and, and know that that's Hopefully, making a difference is hopeful, but you know we're seeing more Asian choreographers. We're seeing less interest in the Orientalist rep. I mean, our production of there's is the only production in North America since 2020, mm-hmm. right? So, like, it you know it's otherwise canceled, you know, except we're trying to do it. We're still trying to do it, you know. And so, um, again, coming back to this opposite of cancel culture, but being given the opportunity and the resources and the time. For people to say, yes, we're listening and we're going to make space for, for Asian artists in this art form as well, and not just do yellow face and the nutcracker. I mean, that's that was the first step. That was the 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 sort of lowest hanging fruit. But now really looking at orientalism, you know, in this way, in this compound history and seeing so clearly that like If our art form can really embrace diversity, there's so much creative potential for audiences, for new forms, new films, VR, new ways of of building audiences, new places for dance um, that we might not have ever dreamed of if we are stuck in the opera houses of Europe mentally, right? And so I'm seeing that change. I'm seeing my community have more opportunities, and I'm seeing a community coming together around this work in a way that I don't think the Asian community has before. So just like I'm in the trenches with so many other people who have taken this so deeply as part of their work, that gives me hope, is this this community. So. Yeah, thank you for having me, Margaret. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, In the show notes we will, of course, include all the information about how to get a copy of Banishing Orientalism and some information about all the many projects that you mentioned over the course of our conversation. Um, If this is your Empire Strikes Back, is there going to be a Return of the Jedi?
1: yeah i already started working on book three which is probably about butterfly definitely about butterfly i think it's it's more going to be a lot more first person so more like the second half of final bow for yellow face it's just like this is my story engaging with this work so probably a little less history so might be might might, might be a little faster this book vanishing orientalism took two and a half years so <laughs> this is definitely um gonna be a lot more fun <laughs>
0: i really looking forward to reading that. Thanks so much, Phil.
1: Yeah, thank you, Margaret.
0: Another big thank you to Phil. In the show notes, as promised, we have links with more information about Banishing Orientalism and about all of Phil's upcoming projects. And thanks to all of you for listening too. We'll be back next week with a headline rundown episode discussing the dance world's recent news stories. Until then, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing.